Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, real quick, before we get to the show, I just wanted to talk about a few things. First of all, I wanted to apologize for the delay in this episode coming out. Unfortunately, there was some technical difficulties being experienced. However, it is here. And it is for your listening pleasure. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, the guest on this episode is Clay Bowers of Know Me Forager. Really cool guy who I heard talk um, and talk about some things foraging. And then I heard him on a podcast as well. And since then, I've kind of been checking out his cool stuff. <clears throat> I suggest you check him out too at knowmeforager.com or find him on Instagram. Awesome dude, self-taught forager. Pretty cool story. Um, but also I want to talk about meat, meet your maker. If you haven't heard of it, which you have, if you're listening to this, you've heard me talk about it, um, on the podcast with Mark Livesey when we were talking about DIY dehydrated meals, I was talking about my dehydrator. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've also seen it there. So if you could do me a favor and you're going to buy one, just go ahead and click on the affiliate link on my webpage at publiclychallenged.com and go ahead and order it through there. That'd be awesome. You'd be helping the podcast out and you're also going to be getting a quality product. I love my dehydrator and I just recently bought a vacuum sealer that works pretty great as well. Also, Treeline Academy. Treelineacademy.net. Heard me say it a million times. I'm still going through the course, learning a ton of stuff, helping me with my e-scouting, the most comprehensive e-scouting course available. So, Check it out. Use promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. You won't regret 
getting that course and learning how to do that e-scouting. I promise you. It's helped me and it'll help you. There'll be something in there that you'll learn. Okay. With that being said, let's get to the episode. Okay. So I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Clay Bowers. So Clay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, my name is Clay Bowers. I am a forager um, predominantly. I also hunt and I trap and I do a little bit of fishing. I'm not as good at fishing and I teach classes in Northern Michigan. So Clay, that's kind of modest introduction. So I'm just going to kind of <laughs> um, elaborate on that a little bit. So you're kind of fishing on its own is pretty interesting. The style that you choose to do, right? I mean, you're, you're not a traditional angler. I mean, maybe you do that some, but what's your preferred method? Oh, my preferred method is anything that gets fish. <laughs> <laughs> if I like, like, um, I tell people this all the time. If I could legally trap everything, I would, uh, you know, except for, except for squirrels, which I like hunting squirrels. But if I could trap a deer or turkeys, I would trap them. Um, <laughs> so if it was legal for me to build willow fish baskets and put them out and catch fish and build weirs and all that <laughs> stuff, I, I, 100%, I would be doing it. I would feel no shame in it. I, a- angling is fun, but it's, uh, it's only fun in a very active setting. So right. for, in- for instance, um, I was in Maine in 2017 in the summer and we were uh, fishing for mackerel and mackerel is, uh, extremely exciting. I mean, we caught 80 fish in an hour one time. That's amazing. That yeah. does sound like a good time. Yeah. Slow, <laughs> slow days suck, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but so, um, not only that, but you, I mean, you're a trapper too, right? Yep. And like you were telling me a little bit earlier before we started, like you trap a full season. I mean, yeah. and did you get started doing that before you ended up uh, getting into hunting or was, was hunting first and then kind of gradually got into the trapping? I got hunting first. Yeah. Tra- trapping was definitely a secondary thing that I, if you would have asked my younger self, I never would have ever thought that I'd set a trap in my life. See, cause that's like, I don't trap. And in my head, especially in my youth, I always was drawn to like mountain men stories and all that kind of stuff about the, you know, the old West, like, mm-hmm. and I always just in my head, it was just such like a, a lofty novel, you know, in my head, I always wanted to do that and just be one of those cool mountain men that <laughs> wore, wore the pelts and ate beaver and all those sorts of things. But it never came to happen. I don't know. Maybe that's something I need to pick up. It, it's pretty cool. It's like a, a lost art. And it seems that, you know, there's always just something. You're always trying to figure something out. You hear a lot of people talk about it. And mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of trappers out there either. Which is Nope. We're a dying breed. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, especially people... Um, like me that trap and eat the animals. So do you trap them for food or you do in pelts or is it kind of a combination? It's a combination. I trap them for food predominantly. And then I take the pelts and uh, we get them processed by different people. I would love to have the time to do that, but I I just pay somebody else to do it for me. So Um, you're, you're keeping those pelts then you're not like uh, selling the fur. No, we keep them. Yeah. Make, uh, making cool stuff out of them then? Um, this year, I'm hoping to make some my my kids some beaver mittens and some little beaver hats and things That's like that. That's pretty cool. 
So yeah. out of your out of all your trappings, what's your favorite meal to eat then? Uh, from the trapping perspective, yeah. Favorite meal, uh, beaver backstrap, one hundred percent. Beaver backstrap. So yeah, kind of elaborate on that because I'm not even familiar with the cuts. I know everybody talks about like, oh, ham or you eat the tail, which I'm not so sure about, but uh, <laughs> the tail is just pure fat. Run, run me through it. Okay. So, um, the very first thing that we, we have in, in my house, like when, when I catch a beaver, uh, the very first thing that we bring in and we cook is the beaver backstraps. And, uh, so a beaver is not that huge of an animal. So we might get on a very, very big beaver, like 25 pounds of meat or something. And that's a massive beaver, right? Yeah, 25 pounds is a pretty big beaver. <laughs> yeah. So um, if um, basically like the backstrap is not that big either in comparison, like I've, I've uh, cut deer backstrap. They're much larger than a beaver backstrap, but the beaver just tastes way better. I, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, it's like steak, ribeye, you know, something like that. The flavor is amazing. Okay. And that, man, so now you got me wanting to eat a beaver. I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to go get my trapping license and learn how to make some sets because <laughs> now, I, now I really want to eat a beaver. I want to know. I'm curious. So, um, you do that. And then you do a lot of foraging teaching too. Before we get to, I kind of want to talk hunting now because you got no, me on the subject. So that's no pretty cool. So no. how'd you get, how'd you end up getting started doing the hunting? Um, the hunting thing was, so we, I know we were talking a little bit about this before we started. And um, so my stepdad has been a hunter my whole life, but I never wanted anything to do with it. So I, I'm an adult onset hunter and my hunting came as a desire to feed myself more from the land and which started with foraging and then it morphed into everything. And and then the hunting aspect came in and I had grown up doing a little bit of fishing. So that wasn't a foreign thing to me, but hunting was. And so I kind of got started really weird. Um, probably mid twenties, I got myself a recurve bow and then I got a blow gun and I, <laughs> and I started, um, hunting squirrels with the blowgun, And, um, I even did manage to hunt one squirrel with my recurve bow. Um, which today I still marvel at that feat that I can't believe <laughs> I, I did that. Um, cause I don't, I don't really do that much bow hunting these days. So it was, that's a pretty phenomenal shot. And just slowly over time, I've gotten further and further into hunting and then the trapping thing but and then guns and all the stuff the fun stuff right yeah um but so you you hung up the bow and you don't you don't even use a bow anymore compound recurve anything i would love to except for i kind of feel like i need to do more practice and i'm just gonna be honest with you i don't practice enough I get it. Yeah. It's, mu- it's much easier for me to just get out there with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, is, is the rifle season pretty long or the shotgun or whatever you guys use in uh, Michigan then? Well, so, I mean, you're speaking just deer. Um, right. So I no, our season's like 15 days. Oh, that's pretty long. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, I hunt everything else. So, right. 
you know, I can use gun, I can use shotgun for, you know, grouse and squirrel, or I don't hunt squirrels with a shotgun, but I, everything that can be hunted with a shotgun, you know, I can, I can hunt. I don't need to use a bow for those. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, and, but bow hunting for deer does increase the length of the season, but I have so many other pursuits of mine that I do in that time frame. Right. That, uh, I can't devote that much time to hunting with a bow. I understand. I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, for me, I, it's kind of one of those things where I, I definitely, I tend to focus on more so with the bow on the deer than anything else. It's just some reason I'm hooked. I can't get I, away. I, I can't get away from it. <laughs> I mean, it is super cool and I want to get there someday. My brother shot his first deer with a bow two years ago and, uh, he was the first person in our family to ever have shot a deer with a bow. <laughs> and so we all kind of were like praising him. And I, def- cool. I, fe- I definitely felt very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like I said, I, if I'm going to be out there, I want to, I want to practice and make sure I have a good shot and I'm not like injuring a deer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's definitely something you want to practice. So let's kind of transition a little bit into the whole foraging thing. So, uh, how did you end up getting started foraging? Um, so my, my foraging story is as follows. Um, when I was a real little child, I was, I was, I was into plant life a little bit, um, but most specifically one plant, and that was the stinging nettle. And I used to grab stinging nettle and like rub it on my skin and then rush around grabbing other plants and trying to rub it on it <laughs> to like counteract the sting. You know, uh, which now I look back and I think that's kind of nutty, <laughs> you know. Um, Maybe not. A young herbalist in the making, right? <laughs> yeah. So I I get the um, early on, like, love of plants, but then the, like, teenage years set in and I kind of just totally got out of it. Nothing at all. And then um, back in my early 20s, I was at, like, this uh, punk show. And I got given a little pamphlet, a little zine thing that was about wild edibles in the metro Detroit area. And that's where I was living at the time. And one of those wild edibles was mulberries. And I I knew that there was a lot of mulberry trees, but I didn't really know that they were edible. And then I kind of started obsessing with mulberries that summer, just completely and utterly obsessing so much that I now don't really like mulberries as a result because <laughs> <laughs> I think I ate too many of them that first year. Yeah. That could uh, definitely uh, <laughs> mess up your digestive tract a little bit. <laughs> eat too yeah. many of those mulberries. That's yeah. for sure. It's kind of weird though. Like, you know, you see all these things throughout your life and you wonder if they're edible. And especially as a child, you really have that urge and you want to pick it and eat it. Mm-hmm. And then you always get people telling you, no, don't eat that. Don't eat. You don't know what it is. And then it almost becomes a phobia. And then later on in life, now you're curious again and you're like, oh man, I could have eaten that. You know, it's just, yeah. it's strange to me because I, I watch my son out in the yard and he's always trying to, you know, pick different berries or whatever. And, you know, I'll let him eat them if it is a mulberry or something that I know you know, mm-hmm. but, but other than that, it it's difficult at times. Now my daughter goes around the yard picking broadleaf plantain and she nibbles on that all the time. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> but, um, so what was kind of when, when you started doing the mulberries and stuff, where, where'd you go next? What did, what did you do? 
I mean, resource wise, and then just kind of what would you forage? Um, in those early years, I was I was doing a lot of dandelion greens, uh, burdock roots, um, just real basic stuff. You know, not not like uh, really adding much to my diet. So you the bur- the burdock root that that's I've never actually eaten one I've I've seen it and stuff and watched people dig it up but I mean isn't it pretty tough? Uh, so in your second year, very tough. Okay. Uh, first year burdock is what you're going after for edible reasons. So it's not as big, you know. Like I mean, when you see a plant, like when I see it, it looks like these giant, you know, almost like elephant ears, right? I mean, is that yep. like a second year plant then? No, uh, the second year plant is the one that has the little burrs that stick to your clothing. Okay. Or not the little burrs, the big burrs. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, But let me tell you a story. Um, Okay. (laughs) I was teaching a plant class a couple years ago, and I had an actual um, woman from Japan come to one of my foraging classes. And we got to talking about burdock, which is a cultivated vegetable in Japan. Mm -hmm. And she said she got here to the u.s and she just couldn't believe it oh my god there's burdock everywhere you know because it's just like like invasive weed here basically and uh she immediately goes out and tries to dig some up and she said it was absolutely horrible and she couldn't believe how bad it tastes (laughs) and so she went and got seeds and grew it in her garden instead that's pretty (laughs) so so apparently the wild stuff here does not taste um anything like the domesticated stuff that they have in japan Interesting. That's so, definitely interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, um, Pascal, I'll mess up his last name, but Pascal I, I, Bodor. Yes. Yeah. I believe he, uh, probably takes second year or two and ferments it or something. I watched him do, uh, do some stuff with that, but otherwise I don't. Yeah. Pascal is a friend of mine. He's a really cool guy. Yeah. I've, uh, I've definitely been following his stuff, but it's kind of over my head right now, especially, yeah. especially early spring, you know, when I'm, so I'm in the phase where it's still, I'm ch- trying to identify it. And a lot of it's pretty hard in early spring when there's not, you know, the different flowers or whatever. So I'm trying to learn the different stages and he's over there picking chervil and all these other things. And I've been told by a lot of people, be careful in the carrot family, because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of things that you could screw up really easily if you don't have the flowers or something to identify it. So I've been kind of leery about trying to follow his stuff too much as far as the actual foraging aspect of it versus the preparation so far but um so you started foraging and doing some things and then i mean at what point did you like really immerse yourself in it to the point where you're like okay man i really know how to identify all these different things now and then i'm gonna start teaching uh i basically moved up here up north to traverse city michigan from the detroit area and then i just started going to town like learning like crazy when i got up here i I, sort of was like an explosion so that was that was about 10 years ago and then i started teaching about 10 years ago so really i will fully 100 percent take responsibility for probably teaching when i wasn't ready (laughs) (laughs) Um, i was just sort of teaching like and, and at that time i wasn't teaching like a lot of classes i was probably doing like one or two a year Mm mm-hmm and I was doing just little stuff that I knew. But when I look back at it now, you know, it was, it's like, I really elaborate now in my classes yeah. and I, I go into 
botanical information and historical uses and evolution of plants and things like that. And back then it was just like, here's this plant, put it in your face. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, was it a hundred percent self-taught or did you take any like lessons or where did you get all your information from? Um, it mostly self-taught books. So, um, and then I have like a pretty good, like photographic memory, which has helped helps me a lot um because i i can actually remember the first time i found wild hops um i'm i'm looking at this plant out in the woods and i go i know this plant <laughs> and i i i run, i go i come back to my house and i flip right to the page that it was on and i, I knew exactly which one it was so it's pretty good yeah and i used to do this thing that i I always told people to do is just like flip through plant books, like just flip through them. Just look at, look at plants look at the name, flip through them. You know, I like, do you know, that. I do yeah. that quite a bit with, especially with, um, with Sam Thayer's books, you know, yeah. I, I take them and I'll be laying in bed at night. And if I'm kind of not tired yet or something, I'll be trying to flip through them and look at them. I do that. I do that. And that's what was like. So this year I learned, um, um, now I'm having a hard time thinking of it. I'm on the spot, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get back to that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I kind of tend to do that too. But um, yeah, you flip you flip through the books looking for different, uh, or just to kind of jog your memory and things like that. Absolutely, and I don't know if it helps or not because I still don't see stuff or even just the little things. But yeah, that's pretty awesome that you are pretty much self-taught then because I always have, I still have that fear, that fear kind of instilled in me. And it's like, okay, yeah, I see it in a book and I know it, but without somebody, without that, like that extra little push and somebody standing there and going, well, what do you think it is? Why do you think it's that? And then going, okay, well look at these features. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, okay. So I still, a lot of times if I identify something, I'll, I'll message like Abby Artemisia or somebody like that and be like, Abby, what what is this is it what i think it is and then i'll tell her you know what i think it is and she'll be like no actually that is blah 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 and then mm-hmm. she'll she'll explain to me and say okay do you see the identifying features that are different so it's just kind of kind of interesting that i don't know so were you ever afraid to eat any of the stuff you found or did you just say hell with it and i think i know what it is i have definitely been afraid to eat things <laughs> and i've actually eaten things and then later been like uh freak myself out you know what i'm saying like yeah. you you eat something you are certain of its identity and then later on you freak out and say maybe it wasn't the right thing <laughs> <laughs> and then you start having like serious anxiety you know like oh my god am i gonna die <laughs> you know that's not a feeling i want to feel though <laughs> no no i i know i'm just admitting it you know, <laughs> i think it's a good thing to admit as somebody who's in my position it's good for me to admit to people that I've made the same mistakes that people probably feel like, Oh, I'm an idiot. And you know, like <laughs> the big, the big people in the foraging world have never made these mistakes. You know, um, <laughs> you just a minute ago, just mentioned Sam, uh, Sam Thayer. He, he's admitted to doing the same exact thing to me, you know, like he's, yeah. you know, and we were at the, uh, Back before when the world was normal, we had the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering, right? And uh, Sam was there, and and we were all 
we I, I can't remember what it was, but we were just like sitting around the fire, like basically like admitting dumb things we'd done while foraging, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we almost all of the big teachers have have uh, had that moment where you ate something and then thought, oh, crap, maybe that wasn't the right thing. You know, that would have been a conversation that should have been recorded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that needs to be on a podcast somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fun. yeah. So. Uh, actually, the plant I was thinking of was mullein. So, like early on in the spring, it was just this big, soft, fuzzy basil like rosette, and I'm like, that looks super familiar, but I can't quite pick it out. And I was looking at it and staring at it, you know. And I took a picture of it, and then later on, I'm flipping through a book, and I didn't, it didn't quite register. And here I am, like looking at it in the book, and it's got, you know, the big the the stock coming up out of it you know with the mm-hmm. with the flowers and stuff and then later on you know like a month later and then i'm going ah now i know what it is and it's funny as soon as i identified it i was talking to somebody about that plant and they were talking about how they made made a hand drill for making fires and yeah. it was just kind of interesting i was like man it's it's funny how all that works like that but so um yeah <laughs> that was the plan i was thinking of yeah, um, mullen is a not a good toilet paper source, by the way. <laughs> I, I hear it is. I hear it is. <laughs> no, that's a that that's I brought that up because a lot of people say, "Oh, mullen, nature's toilet paper," and uh, it's not. <laughs> little little itchy, or are yeah, you po- <laughs> or are you poking through? <laughs> yeah, it, um, I uh, I'm speaking for somebody else, of course, not me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, I had a guy at my plant class one time tell me that he liked to call it cowboy cottonelle. I've heard that. I've actually heard <laughs> that from somebody say that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I've never done that. So maybe, <laughs> maybe if it was an emergency, but yeah, <laughs> I've always got socks. So that's a last resort. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so you're teaching these classes and um, what, like, especially this time of year, what are you, what are you kind of going after and for yourself uh, one to like put away for the winter and then two what are you teaching people kind of uh the the fall or, or late summer early fall is yeah. always always wild rice is number one that's absolute top priority for me because we eat wild rice all year so we harvest enough rice in this fan or i should say i harvest enough rice for my family <laughs> um my my fiance madeline she used to come out ricing with me and uh, that was, she hates spiders and, and mm. there's a lot, there's a lot of spiders involved with that. So it took a lot for her to get out in the boat and to begin with. And then, um, <laughs> so, so now I just go with a dedicated ricing partner every year, or if I don't have one, then I go by myself. So when you go ricing, you take it and you like bend it into the boat, right? And then you try and shake it free or do you hit it with something? You have what are called rice knockers. Okay. So two cedar sticks that are essentially 30 to 38 inches long, somewhere in that range. And then you take one hand and you bend it over the canoe. And then the other one is a big swift knock on the, on the, on all the grain, all the grass that's basically like over the canoe. And then all of the ripe grains fall into the canoe. And then the ones that are not ripe stay on the plant. That's pretty cool. So then do you have to dry that rice afterwards? Absolutely. You got to dry it for sometimes up to three or four days, depending on the weather. And if it rains, it really 
messes things up and does it mold it or what's it do i mean it could mold it yeah if it rained long enough you'd have to find an indoor location to dry it and not everybody is blessed with such a giant space you know so so after you do that then uh you how do you 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 kind of gently grind it to get the husk or the outside off right and then I don't, I don't wind, do any of that wind sifted or what, or you just eat it with it on it. No, I don't do any of that stuff. I take it to a processor. <laughs> <laughs> you um, cheater. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did the first four or five years. I used to do all that, uh, processing the old native American way, you know, dig a little pit and you'd have to like parch it over a wood fire and jig it with perfectly clean moccasins. And it, <laughs> it was, it was so time consuming and like, like I said earlier, I don't do the bow hunting thing because I don't have the time. <laughs> and so I just figured I'm going to pay somebody. And, and so I, I actually get to help a man from the Bad River Indian Reservation who makes a lot of money from this. And he, I, so I take my rice to Ashland, Wisconsin every single year. And my friend Bill parches or uh, processes all of my rice for me. So how do you do it commercially when you process it then? I mean, is it like a similar process just using machinery or what? Yeah. So he still parches it, but I I think he's got like a machine that parches it for him basically. So it's like probably a big drum or something that yep. puts he to it. Okay. And then, and then he's just got uh, what I think I've never seen as machinery. Um, Cause I think that a lot of those guys like to keep their stuff secret, <laughs> you know, right. which I, I'm, I'm totally fine with, you know, like I yeah. said, I, I enjoy having, like being able to help support somebody from the bad river Indian reservation. That's cool. And so he, um, I, I think what it is is like a big barrel with paddles that kind of rubs the the husk off. Okay. And then there's a fan blowing through there, blowing all of the chaff off. So that's kind of like how you would actually cool down coffee and blow the chaff off too. Then I'm, I'm guessing in a similar fashion, because when you roast the beans, the same thing, it opens up the cracks and then you got the chaff and everything on it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's definitely pretty cool. Yeah. So back to your original question, though, <laughs> so I, I do the ricing thing. And then this time of year, um, we get really into nut harvesting. Um, but that that's going to last all the way into, you know, late October at this point, you know. So I haven't harvested, obviously I have to, or else according to like Alan Zakos, I'm not a true forager. And that's when you first feel that you're a true forager is when you get acorns and you make your own acorn flower. Ah, <laughs> I, got, but, I, I got right here on my counter over in front of me here, uh, acorns drying that I just got done leaching and they're so boring tasting. Because so, you hot leached them versus cold or? Yeah, they're just always boring. I, I just do I do the acorn thing because it's like really nutritious and there's a lot of it really fill, it's really very filling. Mm-hmm. But my God, is it a boring food? You <laughs> you have to you have to add like a uh, a lot of stuff to it. So in my household, we pretty much eat gluten free, and I primarily eat grain free. So I'm always looking for the non commercial variety of something, and mm-hmm. um. I, I thought it'd be really cool to try and do the acorn flour or something like that. Use it. And I mean, if you do the cold leaching, you still get the starches so you can use it as a thickening agent or something. Mm-hmm. Does that work pretty good or? Yeah. So we do hot leach and cold leach in our house. This last batch that I was just talking about was hot leach and, um, cold leach just seems to take a lot longer if you're not very judicious about changing the water daily. Mm-hmm. 
So have you done any acorn processing? Not yet. No. So that was going to be my next question. I was actually going to ask you is when harvesting the acorns, um, are you looking for like the green ones and then dry them? Or do you want ones that have already fallen to the ground or how, how do you, does it matter? Basically all nut trees have this thing where they'll drop nuts early mm-hmm. that are infected. So most for most early foragers make the mistake of thinking that a tree is already dropping nuts when it's, and I, and I used to do this as well, you know, Oh, the acorns are dropping. And then what you end up finding out is that no, those are all full of weevils and the tree aborted them. Mm. Um, so what I typically do is if there's a real good tree, I might actually go in with a rake and rake out all the other stuff uh, from the early drop and then come back later and pick the good ones when they're dropped. And it doesn't matter what color they are because sometimes a tree will drop green acorns um, and sometimes a tree will drop totally brown ones. The color, the color doesn't really matter so much. So it, like if it is a green acorn, do you need to dry it or something first? All of them have to be dried. Okay. Yeah. So you want to dry them in a single layer on cookie sheets, maybe with a fan blowing on them. They got to dry fast. Okay. So they have, okay. Like a dehydrator or something then. Um, they don't need to dry that fast. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Fast, but not that fast. Gotcha. Got it. You you just don't want them sitting around. Basically what you want to avoid is doing the thing where you're a forager in training kind of thing. And you fill up a five gallon bucket with acorns and then it just sits in your garage. Got it. Yeah. That's a bad idea. So, um, all pretty much all mast crops then you do the same thing just kind of take them dry them and what about like walnuts are you walnut, oh, yeah walnuts uh do you have black walnuts by you yes a lot yeah. i have got a ton in okay. fact i've got they've been dropping especially we had a windstorm that dropped them early those were probably the ones i should have picked up because mm-hmm. um, they would have been easier to to haul but yeah the black walnuts which we don't really do too much in my house, but I, I historically, that was the first nut that I ever uh, picked and foraged. And I did that for years and years and years. I would pick a uh, hundred pounds a year. Wow. That's <laughs> and, a lot of, a lot of work involved yeah, with that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ton of work. You know, I mean, and people, <laughs> people don't really appreciate that when they see a bag of, you know, when I see it, when I see a black walnut, a bag of black walnuts at the store, I'm blown away by how absolutely insane that is because it's so much work to get to that point, you know, and then they're, they're selling a bag of black walnuts for like eight bucks. And, and, and that same bag would probably take me, you know, three hours to crack that many nuts. So they got to be using some type of equipment then. I mean, they have to be. Yeah. I don't know. I've always wanted to try it. Never wanted to dedicate the time i'll say i'd rather like it seems to me i'd I'd rather dedicate the time to acorns or something but just something easier to crack but i don't know well i have no i have no problem cracking them Um, i can do it with a hammer and i can crack pretty fast and get whole nut meats out i've kind of got this whole little system i've come up with um but all the stuff leading up to that point you know is is very labor intensive 
Yeah, but it kind of, I mean, when, when you said that, like in my head, I was thinking, oh, well, you could be out looking for hen of the woods and at the same time, just carry your rake around with you. And then you could rake away those acorns. And, you yeah. know, so kind of dual purpose. It's not like you're waste, wasting time going out in the woods doing that because, you know, you're going to come home with something, right? Like a maitake or, you know what I, so, yeah, not, not me. I wish we had maitakes here. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know a single spot in Northern Michigan that has maitakes. Oh, well. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. <laughs> I, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> My buddy said he went out the other day and picked about nine of them already. So, holy crap! Yep. So it's happening. He told me he's like, "You better get out there. <laughs> They're out." But so hopefully maybe this weekend or something. But um, so you're you're teaching your your classes then, and what what are you kind of teaching them in the fall then, other than like the mast mast crop stuff okay so the mass crops we do I'll, I'll teach people up here anyway we do the the mass crops the nuts and then a big one that i like to tell people about is wild parsnip because wild parsnip is ready to go in the fall as well as the early spring so that's like something you can eat very late before winter hits and then very early after winter's gone so is that kind of like a horseradish then where they tell you it's like something that ends with an R, like a month that ends with an R is when you should harvest it? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, some, it's something like that. Yeah. Uh, we have Jerusalem artichokes around us, wild ones. We have all of the root crops essentially. And then you can get watercress at this time of year. I actually just harvested like six pounds of watercress earlier. And, um, have you, do you guys have watercress by you? I have not found any. I'm not saying we don't have it, but I don't mm-hmm. think I'm at the stage yet to where I could probably identify it. So may, maybe, I mean, I've, I've seen it in books, kind of got an idea of it, but haven't actually found, come across any that I know of. Okay. Well, so watercress is really, really abundant by us and, and probably not to everybody, you know, like they would have to go looking for it, but I know my spots and I know where my spring watercress comes up. And then I also know where there's that stuff flowers and is done by now. And then I know where fall watercress is. And I have two different spots that I just go to and I have watercress almost the entirety of the growing season. That's pretty cool. So is it two different varieties or is it just like it has like a second growth? Does the, for whatever reason, the spot that I was picking at earlier always pops up later in the season. So I don't really understand. I was actually just kind of like standing there looking and trying to understand it earlier, you know, because there's another spot that I pick from that's only a few miles away and that stuff comes out early spring and it's lush and big and you got to cut it down or it goes right to seed. And I I have no idea. I wonder, sometimes I wonder if it's water temperature or if maybe it's like the position of the sun and, you know, (laughs) anything like that. That's interesting. So I wanted to ask you something real quick before we carry on with the rest of that conversation. It might be kind of a rabbit hole, but yeah. I, saw you, I saw you posted something the other day about your wild rice and trying to propagate in a new spot and uh, take, taking advantage of the inherent laziness of most people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I, 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 you always must, you must uh, utilize other people's laziness to your advantage. That works in hunting too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a spot by me that is a big beaver pond and it's 
perfect. It's shallow enough for wild rice to grow in. And um, yeah, I've just been putting rice in it for a couple of years. <laughs> Does, is it actually growing or? Yeah, it's starting to come up. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So like all grasses and are essentially grains, right? I mean, yeah. If, if you like, I mean, I thought, I don't know, that's what I heard or something along the way. And I think maybe even you might've said something like that, but hmm, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't you. I don't know. <laughs> but it, so, I mean, essentially, right. The rice is a grain and which is a actual grass, just like a mm-hmm. wheat and everything like that. Right. Okay. So I'm kind of curious what other things this time of year are you uh, foraging besides like mass crops? Besides mass crops and besides hunting, what I'm often looking for this time of year are the little late season berries. And those are, as of last year, I found a pretty good cranberry spot. But my usual pursuit for berry crops is autumn olive. And autumn olive is a is an invasive species that was brought here from Asia. And uh, do you guys have it where you are? Uh, we have some, I, I don't, I haven't found like huge, huge spots of it. Although, uh, a friend of mine told me a lot of the strip mines, old strip mine lakes and stuff were kind of lined with a lot of autumn olive. For some reason, the ground was disturbed and it was a good spot for it to spread. Yeah. So for whatever reason, that is my, my experience is that it's listed as a crazy invasive everywhere, but I've only ever seen it be as gnarly of an invasive as it is in northern michigan um and so we have tons of it like literally just as an example last fall i picked 19 pounds in 30 minutes with my my lady (laughs) wow so in order to pick that much what do you use is there like some type of berry picker that was actually me using a blueberry rake just trying it out on autumn olives so obviously that that entails a lot of winnowing afterwards because there's a lot of leaves and debris and stuff, but the the berries are amazing. They're super tart and our Sandy Northern Michigan soils lend themselves very well to the autumn olive plant. And I was just talking about this the other day, autumn olive in Southern Michigan, where I have taught plant classes, not very abundant Um, or, or rather the plants are abundant, but then the berries won't be available as long as they are here. Up in northern Michigan, we have autumn olives start ripening in late August, and they go into December. Wow, that's a pretty yeah. good, uh, pretty good growing season. Yeah, and then um, they also have a number of antioxidants that promote male prostate health. So it, it's a a kind of a thing for me that I like to promote men eating autumn olives. That's a good thing. That's definitely yeah. a good thing to keep an eye on. Um, so, what do you guys do with the the autumn olives? How do you how do you prepare them then? Well, we freeze them. We make autumn olive jam. That's a good one. Um, and if we have enough maple sugar, we'll use maple sugar instead of store-bought sugar. But <laughs> I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not. I'm not going to lie and tell you that most. Um, a lot of our jam is made with regular store-bought sugar. But it is a goal that one day we have of making it with maple sugar exclusively. Um, then I've done fruit leather. This year, I'm planning on doing a feral applesauce with autumn olives. Um, and then I'm going to make an autumn olive mead here probably in the next week. So that's interesting that you say that the whole feral apple thing, cause I just saw Daniel Vitalis, uh, did a whole kind of thing on that, but can you explain to other people who don't really understand that the whole feral apple process or what, what is a feral apple? 
A feral apple. Uh, well, I must first state my thoughts on the whole word feral. Uh, <laughs> feral, and, and I say feral, well, normally I'll say wild apples, but then people say, no, they're feral apples. And I, so that shows you the people's mindset. When people say the word feral, they usually entailing that they don't, they don't like that. So when people are, you can tell what somebody's stance is on horses, whether they call them wild horses or feral horses, because if somebody likes them, they say they're wild. If they don't like them, they call them feral. So all that said, anyway, that was just a non sequitur. <laughs> um, wild or feral apples are just apples, like a seed from an apple. Like say you're driving down the highway and you eat an apple and you toss your core out. There's five seeds in that apple five chances for a tree to grow and if a tree grows up it's going to have feral apples on it these apples can vary so much because they have a trait that's called extreme heterozygosity so heterozygousness is like what humans have like we're all going to look slightly different um, and then you know our traits can be can vary wildly we can be very tall we can have dark skin light skin you know, all of these things, we're not going to look ever exactly the same. And the same goes for apples. So, okay. So in, in saying that, so the, the other ones, when they're propagated or pollinated, they're very specifically pollinated versus what would be happening in the wild in, in the instance of a feral apple, right? I mean, essentially the other ones are made to look the same pur purposely, you know, in a store. Um, Actually, it gets even creepier than that. All... <laughs> Red Delicious apples, for instance, are all clones. So so literally there was one apple tree a long time ago that somebody found, like a Red Delicious or a, a Granny Smith. They found that one tree and they said, I like it. And ever since that point in, in history, they've been taking limbs off of existing trees and then grafting them onto other rootstock. So they're all clones. Got so if you, you see an orchard that is literally the same not not only like the same species, it's the same tree. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Very creepy. So yeah. so when you're making this applesauce, then I mean, e each batch has to be like just inherently unique, right? I mean, every mm -hmm. single that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's it, pretty it is. It is pretty cool, and like all apples don't taste the same. So if you have crab apples, you want to throw in there, they'll have different tastes and i i personally like it i know that some people enjoy having things be uh exclusively the same every year they want to have the same flavor profile and everything that they make and that's very boring to me or yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that's like having the same deer hunt uh -huh. every year sitting in the same tree stand waiting for the deer to came, come down the same trail it, to me, I'd like to go explore. I want to see a new piece of property. I want to figure it out and find those deer on it. So yeah, yeah. no, I get it, man. Um, so it kind of brings me to one of the next things that you kind of talk about and you teach um, is th this whole new thing I saw. I was looking at your website and it was a class and it is uh, navigating the land or land navigation, but mm -hmm. you're using the land to navigate, right? Can you kind of like really go into that and explain what that is and how that works? Well, I'm not a super pro at it, so I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you that right now. I'm I'm only conveying things that I've learned over the last few years just kind of paying attention. I like natural navigation because it's a way to find which way you're facing 
without using a compass or a map. And other than other than the fact that that is inherently like a good skill, it's just cool. It's like totally unnecessary in the world that we live in, <laughs> but it, but it is really cool. And as such, most of my classes don't really fill up. I have um, probably three or four people come to any class that I've taught. And I've only done um, three or four classes over the last two years. Okay. But let's kind of, so let's get into it. When, when you're saying this, you're, you're talking about using the natural terrain and the features that, or, or what the plants give you to identify your finding your way. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of clues. It should probably not be called natural navigation. It could be called clues. Cause I, I'll also go into certain aspects of forests and how they develop and, and the clues that they offer us. If you're walking around in the woods and you see an apple tree, for instance, those apple, apple trees don't ever get that big. So if you see an apple tree and then there's a forest all around it, that means that at one point in time, you're probably walking through an old farm right? or, or you see a bunch of apple trees, you know, and those kind of things I like to pay attention to because say, you were walking and you were lost and you found an apple tree in the woods. What would that mean to you if you found an apple tree and you were totally lost in the woods? What would that mean to you? <laughs> it would mean to me probably either that somebody had been there and dropped something or planted an apple at some point, or it was probably an old farmstead or something like you said. Hmm. So to me, if I found an apple tree out there and there was, and I was lost completely, that would mean the civilization was nearby. Okay. Uh, so like, that would be a, a, a clue. Okay, I'm heading in the right direction. There's an there's an apple tree, and I guess I should clarify by saying not a crab apple, because crab apples can be <laughs> like wild and well, there are native crab apples. Um, but as far as other things go, I mean, the wind, it, it like does a lot for finding or, or showing us our way. So the wind shapes landscapes, and the wind can can show us all kinds of things, especially in the winter months. It's predominantly from the west, so a tree will will show off, exhibit different characteristics based on the wind that basically are perfect point pointers towards east and west. Okay. If you have if you have a lone tree out in a big plain, it will oftentimes be sort of sheared and pointing in the direction away from the wind because the wind has exerted so much uh, force upon it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I I do know what you're saying. In fact, in in my mind right now, I can picture a tree and I always thought it was either a, the only lone tree on that hill and the wind either shaped it like that, or it was an old native American marking to where they actually took and actually straightened the limbs out because there was no limbs on the, like the North, it would be the North, west side of the tree oh no limbs huh yeah it was weird it it was either like it was was shaped that way or the the wind pushed it enough to where it actually opened it up on that side and then the other limbs though which was kind of odd or peculiar was that they went straight out so Mm -hmm. i kind of thought maybe that was an old marking of some sort of it like a fur trading trail or who knows something yeah so all kinds of things used to be like that too which is kind of interesting and that's something that I've been fascinated by for a while because I'll make myself little signs in the woods too that I can tell. If I find a porcupine tree, for instance, I don't want to 
go hunting porcupines every time of the year, but say I just want to go get a porcupine, I will make little markers for myself. Um, so um, let's kind of, I'm curious about that. So yeah. hunting porcupine all the time or just kind of like when you want to find one, is it like something you want to eat all the time or is it just no. like, uh, maybe it's good, you know, no. just define it. What does it taste like? <laughs> Porcupine tastes, uh, in the words of my son, it tastes just like deer. I don't, I, it's probably, probably not, not accurate, but my son says they taste just like deer. Um, he likes them. I like them. I, it's not something that I hunt all the time. It's just something that is very easy to find. Very easy to hunt. I've even heard that some of the Anishinaabe people up here call them, call it, grandfather's meat or something like that <laughs> you know grandpa, slow enough to <laughs> yeah <laughs> i get it <laughs> and um they have they're all over the place up here i'm sure you you guys don't have probably many porcupines. not that i know of i have i have never come across one okay well they're a common sight just on my street as roadkill wow yeah. <laughs> that's pretty interesting i wish we had like a beaver hunting season versus a trapping season i'm gonna have to get into trapping now because i want to eat beaver meat <laughs> after, after talking earlier in our conversation it's something that i definitely need to try so uh, i'm gonna have to get into that befriend a trapper as i think i mentioned a lot of trappers unfortunately don't eat the meat really yeah, yeah. that's interesting um so let's kind of get back to that whole navigation thing then like okay. what, what else um I know we got sidetracked there, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, so what else are you kind of looking for then? Other things that I would look for, um, let's see, light will will do things as well. So a tree, and a, and a lot of this varies. So if you're in a deep, dark forest, it's going to be much, much harder to find your way. But if you find a tree that's kind of out in the open, that tree will have some specific things that it will show people. One, the sunlight affects how it's going to grow. So its limbs on the south side will tend to be more straight out, facing towards the sun, tend to. So I'll say that. So you got to check multiple trees most of the time. The trees on the north side will tend to be kind of angled upward, as if they're like sort of reaching up to find the sun that's from the south. Interesting. And then, and I say tend to, like I said, I'll always use that caveat because some trees will be backwards of that. And people will say, see, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, but you just check multiple trees and it, it kind of works. Or I could give you an example. In I believe 2013, we had a major storm here in northwestern lower peninsula that blew in with 100 plus mile an hour winds. And there's a national park near me called Sleeping Bear Dunes. It's a national forest area. And they had trees knocked down everywhere. Well, guess which direction the wind came from? South. No, it came from the west. I mean, it was okay. a, typ typ <laughs> a typical west wind. So all those trees are blown down in one direction. Which direction do you guess that wind is? The wind blew it down. You would think it blew it to the east, but I'm yeah, it did. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, simple, right? Every time you're walking through Sleeping Bear Dunes now in the general vicinity of where this storm blew in, there are these markers that are going to be there until they disintegrate. And as long as we carry that knowledge of us, 
or with us that this event happened at that time. You see all these trees pointing directly east. That's one that's one way that I, I went out there a couple winters ago and I noticed I was like, wow, all these trees are pointing directly east. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's pretty cool. So like you're not looking at trees and going, oh, the moss. We're going to go no. north, right? You know, because <laughs> I mean, you, you, I always heard that as a kid, you know, oh, we look to the north side of the tree and the moss, there's moss on some trees that goes all the way around the tree and it's just as thick. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that is, it's pretty much utter nonsense. Yeah. The, the, the moss thing, because moss just grows where it's cold and damp. Right. I mean, I do understand that, yes, if it's on the north side, it maybe will dry less than because it's getting less light than the south side or whatever. But for the most part, yeah, especially if it's like a big dark, like you were saying, a dense dark forest, it's going to grow wherever it wants. Mm-hmm. So I, I should say that anybody can basically find these things and, and go out and study them for themselves and kind of remember them it, by, I, I always have to give a shout out to the, the guy whose books I've gained most of this knowledge from. I have gained a lot just from like little just outings and paying attention. But most of my knowledge came from reading like The Natural Navigator, which is written by Tristan Gooley. Okay. He's a he's a guy from the UK. He's amazing. If you haven't heard an interview with that guy, you should check out an interview with him because he's done some cross like crossed uh I believe the Isle of Crete one time with no instruments at all, no compass or anything, and he he ended up exactly due south of where he started. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, and and he he does things like the the BBC had him in a cave in underground and said, "Which direction are we facing?" And he like looked at the rocks and the earth and and said, "Oh, I know which way." And he told him, and he was right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm definitely having. What's his name again? Tristan Gooley. Tristan Gooley. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. Now that's yeah. cool. So, um, if people wanted to find you, Clay, and maybe take some classes from you and stuff, where would they do that? My website is nomiforager.com. So www.nomiforager.com. I also am on social media, Clay Two Underscores Bowers, and Facebook, which I barely ever use, but <laughs> Facebook is Clay Bowers. Just look gotcha. me up. Yeah. And and then uh, if they wanted to go for your classes, it'd just be the Nomi Forager as well? Yep. They just find me on, on Nomi Forager. That's cool. I appreciate talking to you and I appreciate you coming on and uh, uh, definitely feel like I learned a lot and hopefully one of these days maybe I can get up there and uh, take some classes from you. Oh, that'd be super, super stellar. And plus, <laughs> uh, if if the world is back to normal next year, I plan on doing some out-of-state travel for classes because I, I'm just trying to broaden the horizons here past Michigan. Awesome. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. All right. I'll talk to you. Okay, bye. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.
of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinners. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.